Welcome to the Movie Geeks United 30th Anniversary Celebration of Howard the Duck. For this episode, we've combed through the archives of our siblings' show Back by Midnight, and courtesy of host Arenada Diaz, we bring you an interview with the film's director, Willard Hike, and his wife and collaborator, as well as the writer of the film, Gloria Katz. Across the sea of stars lies another world, a world almost exactly like ours. This is where he lives. He's 27 years old, single but searching. Favorite sports, windsurfing and Aikido. Favorite pastimes, cigars and sex. He has everything except fulfillment. And then one night, it happens. Hey, good buddy, are you home? He has a very sudden midlife crisis. He lands in Cleveland. You do know why you were sent to me? Listen to me, small visitor. I can explain how you got here. Maybe you're here for some greater purpose, some cosmic cause. Here, he's forced to reassess his career goals. You went to med school? To explore new relationships. <laughs> to redefine his self-image. I'm sorry, we don't allow pets on the premises. To adjust to a changing lifestyle. Until he discovers just who he really is. A duck in big trouble. That's a duck, man. Howard the Duck, trapped in a world he never made. Coming from George Lucas, a Willard Hike film, a Gloria Katz production. It is sometimes said that a good test for a relationship is to go on a cross-country trip. The theory, I guess, is that if you can survive a high-pressure situation like that, then you're compatible. In Hollywood, a good test for a collaborative relationship isn't the successes, but when a movie gets labeled as trouble by the press and critics. The August 1st, 1986 release of Howard the Duck has become one of the most famous examples of this theory. From the husband and wife team of Willard Hike and Gloria Katz, he directs, they both write and produce, Howard the Duck is at once a case study, a cautionary tale, and an instant cult item. Adapted from Steve Gerber's 1970s satirical Marvel comics, Howard the Duck is a punk rock sci-fi action comedy intended for the entire family. It's brought to you as a George Lucas presentation, no less. The result was a smart-aleck grunge comedy with high-scale action sequences that was greeted by some of the most hostile reviews of the decade. From its sex-tinged humor to its over-the-top creature effects, courtesy of Phil Tippett, to a pre-Bull Durham Tim Robbins, to a score combining the talents of John Barry and Thomas Dolby, Howard the Duck has become a cult item amongst the HBO generation and followers of Frank filmmaking. Now, Howard the Duck has finally come home to DVD. Joining us to discuss the movie is both Willard Hike and Gloria Katz. They've been partners in life and movies for nearly 40 years, and their association with George Lucas has also been nearly that long. With American Graffiti, they helped create the template for movies about nostalgia and remembrances. With Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, they not only wrote the best of the Indiana Jones movies, but one of the greatest action movies of all time. Other credits include such films as Lucky Lady, Best Defense, 
the innovative but little seen Radio Land murders, and the little known comic gem French postcards. It is my pleasure to welcome husband and wife team Willard Hike and Gloria Katz. Why don't we start at the beginning and um, maybe I'll, I'll ask uh, ladies first and what, where did y'all first? Uh, how did y'all first meet? Um, we actually uh, met at a screening of Roger Corman's uh, what, uh, Wild, Angels. Wild Angels. I had just uh, been working all night on editing my uh, student film, A Date with Barbie and Ken. Those were the Barbie and Ken dolls. And right. I sat next to, there was only one seat left in uh, the screening hall, and I happened to sit next to Willard. Oh. And I had come across town. He was showing, Roger Coleman was showing the film at UCLA, and I was at SC. Mm -hmm. So I actually drove across town to see it. He was, Roger Coleman was already a god. He was still in his 30s, but he had made, I don't know how many movies. Right. And uh, Gloria had just returned from Europe and had on the first miniskirt I ever saw, so I immediately fell in love. (laughs) Okay. And and I'm just curious, at what point does... uh, does George Lucas into this uh, collaborative partnership? Well, actually, at that point, I was in film school with George uh, at SC, and uh, so we were already friends. And uh, years, some years later, George kept telling us about this comic book that he wanted to do, and we were having lunch in Studio City, and there happened to be a comic book store next door, and he said, come on, well, I'll show you. And so he showed us the Howard the Duck comic books. Mm-hmm. And we started about talking about doing it as a movie. So we started talking about this movie maybe in 1972. And um, for years, we sort of tried to get the rights, but the rights were always taken. And then, finally, I guess in 85 or 84, we finally got the rights Mm-hmm. And then we we sort of, you know, I mean, there wasn't a real lot of reasons for people to do this movie, so we finally decided to talk to George about it. And George decided, well, he had always been interest, interested in this project, and we could sort of do it together. Mm-hmm. In those early stages of the Howard the Duck adaptation, was was uh, what was the... Uh, the idea behind it, because the comics were very satirical and very, uh, they were one satirical and one's very broad, and they had, uh, you know, these outlandish superhero kind of send-ups, if you will, and then these satirical jabs at conventions of comic books and at, at social mores, if you will. And, and so was that, when, when the first uh, talks were underway, was it to, let's try to do something real, you know, dark and adult or let's try to try to see if we can straddle the dark and adult and with the uh and maybe something a little more uh, I guess you know mainstream slash family friendly if you will well that was always a problem I mean we actually tried to to, to maintain the tone of the, of the comic books although we couldn't you know maintain all the stories and so forth mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> so the um it it was an odd duck in that it wasn't really a family film uh and it, it had even though it had broad sort of goofy comedy um it wasn't really for kids and uh things like the 
the sex scene and so forth were odd. And, uh, you know, we were always, it was, it didn't really fit. I think that's part of the reason people didn't know how to take the film. And let's talk about let's talk about this head on because you say you know the because the sex kings thing is is kind of interesting and I, as as I played the trailer earlier I love the line his pastimes are cigars and sex which is uh, a great great line uh, for the voiceover and I was was there an attempt uh, like you know why don't we try doing you know an R or a PG thirteen was or was was it just the way it came out that you know it wound up being PG, even though there was this innuendo all throughout the film? Yeah, I, I don't think there was any attempt to you know make it dumb it down to be a kids' film. I mean, I <laughs> think that's the tone we liked. Uh, mm-hmm. We really didn't have any problems until they decided to to release it after the film hadn't been successful, and they had releases like on. on airplanes. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they said, "Could you take the sex scene out?" You know, and and sort of said, "Listen, we haven't made a nickel on this movie yet, so give us a break." Right. So on the airplane, they didn't have the sex scene. But uh, no, I mean it was it was more of a you know um, a question of you know us sort of straddling tones rather than trying to get any kind of particular rating. Well, and let's let's go back a little to that pre-production period, and let's just talk about this concept of this duck i had read in fact actually um i think jeffrey jones told me this once that at one point he said this was early on there was talk or even maybe a you know suggestion that maybe this was going to be uh the first pixar film actually we had talked about animating it but um you know we we didn't have the lead time to mm-hmm. really animate it you need you know several years and Universal needed a product out by, you know, the next summer. So we, you know, we had to sort of go with the animatronics. Mm-hmm. George really, at that point, the only thing like that, Roger Rabbit was animated. But George didn't want to do that kind of movie. I mean, they right. did that later. But he was, you know, they had used puppets, and he was used to, you know, animatronics and things. And mm-hmm. it, it it was really not... I mean, the way you would do it now, obviously, is CG, and and there wasn't. That was just in the beginning. When we tried to take out some wires, you know, when Howard is blasting out of his, off of his planet, he blasts through walls and blasts through this little lady duck's bathroom and so right. forth. There were wires, and to to take that out on a computer was a huge deal, very expensive, and it took forever. And um, you know. Nowadays, it's, it's nothing. Was there so a, that was our only other choice, and yeah. we decided to go with puppets, uh, yeah. a, a combination of puppets, little people, and animatronics. Was there ever discussion of uh, something like, you know, with Coraline, something with stop motion? Or is that would that also be too well, that, no, time-consuming? Well, that would be, yes, that would be time-consuming as far as Howard. I mean, the, the monster was stop motion. Phil Tippett's right. work was stop motion. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it, it it would take forever to have Howard to have been stop motion and, and to talk and to do as much action and things. Like mm-hmm. that. Well, and, well, let's talk about the the story. What were some of the uh, the uh, the plot elements when when y'all were putting the script together? Because obviously, the Le- uh, the character played by Leah Thompson, Beverly Switchler, uh, that is from the comic book. But I believe in the in the comic she's a she's a model, but uh, you know in here she's a 
punk rock punk rocker kind of I guess uh, uh, sort of a cross between the Go Go's and the Runaways. I'm, yeah, I'm, we just thought that was sort of more fun and contemporary at the time than than mm-hmm. a model. It just it mm-hmm. seemed a little old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Um, what really happened is our first script we didn't get into at all, which was our original concept and George's idea of how Howard even got here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the original idea was to have Howard in a movie and not sort of explain why right. the way he was. And so it was set in Hawaii. And, you know, we wrote the whole thing, and the studio finally said, this is too strange. I mean, you know, you've got to sort of explain what in the hell's going on and, and why he's here. So then we went back and, and you know, incorporated things from the, the comics of, of his backstory and, and, and why he ended up in Cleveland. Let's talk about the voice of Howard. Uh, the voice of Howard is provided by... Uh um, Chip Zine, is that, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. It's Chip Zion. Uh, oh, Chip Zion uh, is a really well-known Broadway actor. Yeah. He's been in many of the Steve uh, Sondheim, James Lapine uh, Broadway musicals. He was a lead in Into the Woods. We, um, I mean, I did a lot of voice casting at that time, and it went on for months and months of trying to find the appropriate voice, and we just uh, really felt, well, first of all, Chip is a really good actor, and Willard spent weeks and weeks with him in a dark room. He was very easy to work with, and we we just thought he had the right voice for the character. We had everybody in the world who wanted to do the voice. I mean, it became sort of a thing that people said, you know, I'll fly up to San Francisco, it'll be fun, I'll meet George and see Lucasfilm, and I'll... So we had all the comics, you know, from Robin Williams to everybody who was successful in those days. Uh, and, was there uh, was there pressure from the studio of like getting you know getting a name voice? No, or? they actually that was even before they sort of had names doing animated films. That mm-hmm. that was that that came later. I mean, um, our feeling was a, a lot of the times so like somebody like Robin Williams who was brilliant, but we had a script and eventually the voice was going to be put in after the the uh, film was shot. Mm-hmm. So Robin would go off on these riffs, which were great, but unfortunately the film was shot. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't going to work. And then we also felt that a lot of the actors with very, very recognizable voices weren't working well, because you immediately thought of their personas and so and forth. And Chip had a very distinctive voice that came through, and it was really like blind tasting tests. We would... Right have no idea who the person was, and we'd listen to the takes, and uh, we selected him. And I'll say this. Uh, I, for whatever people may think of the film, I do think Chip Zion is a great voice. It's a very smart-ass voice, but a very authoritative voice, and I think it's a terrific voice performance. It is, and and we were very very pleased with his performance, and, uh, yeah, we, we thought the same thing. It was a very distinctive voice. <laughs> Just saw your show. Oh, right, lady, love your music. Hey. Bye now. Can I have your autograph on my shirt? Oh, me too. On my shorts. <laughs> Real charming. Just go away, okay? Hey. Ow. Talking to you, big rock. Huh? Yeah. Hey, don't go snot nose on us. We your biggest fans. Yeah. Listen, let me go. Uh. Help somebody! Help! Uh. Help! Uh. Come here, snot nose. That's it. 
No more Mr. Nice Duck. Let the female creature go. Every duck's got his limit, and you scum have pushed me over the line. Jimmy, do you like to see what I see? A talking duck? Yeah, that's it. I've been doing too much toot. <laughs> no one laughs at a master of quack foo. are gonna beat it, right, Mr. Zitz? Before I get really mad! Come on! Let's go! This is obviously no place for an intelligence-sensitive duck. Well, I gotta ask this, because uh, you said it's all done in post, the voice, so, on a, on a technical level, so, you know, there are scenes with Leah Thompson, Jeffrey Jones, and Tim Robbins, and everyone's interacting with the Howard the Duck, uh, puppet and or whatever so is, uh, is there a script supervisor off camera reading the lines for marks or is it audio taped or what, no what? actually what, what we did is um the puppeteer the lead puppeteer most of the time would be talking and um while he was running a little you know like game uh console and moving the lips and so forth he would he would do the talking Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, the script supervisor would read lines, but most of the time it was um, he sort of did the talking as they moved the lips. Because even when the little people were in, the, they had, we had this duck head that they put on. It was full of gears and little motors, and those would be operated by a panel of four people. Mm-hmm. Somebody would be doing the eyes, somebody would be doing the mouth as you know this sort of little person in an iron mask was was acting so it was always the lead the guy doing the mouth uh, is is what we heard on the tracks until we finally you know started laying in the uh, chips line right and uh, i got to ask about this cast because as i stated before but uh, in in my intro this is a 2 years before Bull Durham and you have uh, Tim Robbins um, so, so what was that casting process? I'm sure, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a, you know, George Lucas's name is is attached to this. So I'm sure you had, you know, a lot of actors who came in, but Tim Robbins wasn't a, a known entity, and Jeffrey Jones, he he was a stage actor, but he he was he had some heat coming off of Amadeus. So what what was that casting those casting sessions like for some of these key roles? Well, we had a, a really good casting person, Diane Crittenden. And um, she brought in Tim, and when she brought in Tim, Tim did a spectacular reading, and he was really, really inventive. I mean, people like Diane Crittenden are aware of, you know, Tim had made sort of a splash at UCLA Theater Department. Right. And so people were aware of him as a young actor, and we were aware of of Jeffrey Jones. So um, casting people, you know, really... Stay on top of, of what's happening and people on the 
you know, when you're reading a lot of people, you know, I mean, both Jeffrey and Tim are so exceptional that you, I mean, you immediately know when when somebody is extraordinarily talented. I mean, when we did this movie, French Postcards, we had the same thing. Tim Robinson come in and just did a great reading, and and Maddie Patinkin had a very small part in uh, in Deborah. And Deborah Winger. People yeah. don't know that this is. A... It was this, it was the same thing. I mean, hmm. there was some notice by casting people who hmm. keep track. It's like baseball, you know. They mm-hmm. they keep track of the people coming up, and um, you know, you have to take a chance on them. And normally in those roles, in, in, in maybe more in those days, you weren't looking for established people anyway. And the and I guess the co-lead is Leah Thompson. Now I've read, uh, I've read other people. You know, some of the people who 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 auditioned. I think Belinda Carlisle came in. Was was a a singing component uh, optional or preferable, or was that just a bonus when you were auditioning? It was, it was just a bonus. I mean, yeah, we had um, we talked about a few singers, uh, and then we felt, you know, in the readings and and so forth that. that the acting was the most important part, mm-hmm. and uh, you know Leah was fantastic, and and Tom Dolby took Leah and the other three girls, mm-hmm. and really made them you know come up across as, as a pretty good, uh, pretty good uh, rock room. You know that's another thing the the, the behind the scenes credit. I mean, you have a score put together not only by Thomas Dolby who does the songs and so forth, but John Barry working. You know, these two guys working together. Uh, and that was I, an odd mix. I, I can only imagine because you have this, you have a you know you have a regular score that's for kind of like an an adventure film, and then you have these kind of uh, in the middle of all that you have these very pop punk songs uh, kind of bumping up against each other. Yeah. Kind of fun. Yeah, it was fun. I, I mean, we had a you know we we did a lot of different kinds of music, and that you know it was interesting from a production point of view. I, I gotta ask, was there always going to be a title song, uh, or was that just something that came through these sessions of these creating these songs for the movie? Well, I don't know if we always thought of a title song, but we knew at the end that Howard was going to be singing, mm-hmm. and I think that Tom came to us and he had, he actually worked with George Clinton on the this funky song that was titled Howard the Duck. And we said that'd be great, you know. And and, and if, if you could get a song out of Howard the Duck and rhyme it with things, I mean that that would be great. So, rhyme it and, and keep it clean. Yes, keep it clean. There's not a lot you can. But uh, you know, it was fun. It, yeah, we liked the song. And in case was, and in case our listeners don't know, and I don't even know if you all know this, but the actual Howard the Duck music video is on YouTube, um, which is uh, a real fun thing to see, which has a preamble of uh, Howard and Tim Robbins before the music video. Um, did you direct that? Or no, that... I actually, Tom Tom directed that. It's a very funny, it's a very yeah. funny bit. And so, and then like I said, Phil Tippett, and the cinematographer Richard Klein, I mean... Yeah, it's just... interesting. We mixed a lot of sort of off-the-wall choices with people like Richard Klein, mm-hmm. who has, you know, made a lot of movies. Right. But again, because there were, you know, we we knew we'd be doing a lot of special effects. We wanted somebody who who had done that before and knew what what ILM needed. Right. Um, and of well, course, Phil was the master. I mean, Phil yeah. was was a god. And so, 
Oh, we had one other extraordinary person, Ben Burt, the oh, yes. uh, who did the voice of the monster at the end and is now the voice of Wally. <laughs> That is on his resume. Yeah. <laughs> you do the film. You 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 do you finish principal photography and you're into post production and you're dealing with effects and uh, getting the voice in and so forth. And but you know this this film became very famous. Was there a moment where you you thought you know? Is there a moment in the post production process where you think you know I don't think. A lot of some people might not get this. Oh yes, there was that, but there was that feeling from the beginning that mm. you know we weren't really sure whether people would get it. George had this sort of attitude; he didn't care. You know, uh, he still George still loves the movie. I mean, George's take on the movie has always been, uh, you know, I like it, and he um, he he calls all the time. He'll say, you know, I was thinking the other day if you looked at Teenage Ninja. Mutant Ninja, and you looked at Howard the Duck and said, which one was the hit? You'd have to say Howard the Duck, because he said the other film's really awful. I mean, so, no, he's always liked it. Maybe maybe George's stubbornness has uh, had sort of affected the project. But I think the idea of Howard the Duck, the title, the uh, there there were problems using you know little people in, in suits. Right. We certainly had a lot of technical problems because of that, and I think that George was sort of a big target. Well, and, and this was and a... people, for whatever reason, didn't like the movie. Um, but during post-production, actually, was fun because there were so many production problems. I mean, the mm. first day we shot with Howard, they opened his mouth and suddenly his neck exploded, and all the innards, all the mechanical stuff, were exposed, mm. and everybody just sat there in silence. <laughs> What are we going to do? And this is a in this summer. Summer. It's funny, you know. You, you know, you don't know what kind of summer you're going into until you're in the midst of it. But you you have that date. That's where you plant your flag. But the summer of '86 is a pretty remarkable summer in in film history. This is the summer of uh, of Top Gun, of Aliens, of The Fly. Uh, uh, there's you know, Ferris Bueller, and so there is just this one kind of pop culture film after another. And Howard the Duck was one of those films. I, I, so I'm curious on that opening weekend. You know, uh, you know, we all we, we all know the story that, you know, uh Mr. Lucas goes, you know you know, goes away for the opening weekend. Uh, what did you all do that opening weekend? Well, I think we were considering going to Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> we we did nothing. I mean you know sort of uh beforehand with your previews with that you're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. I mean, the studios unfortunately know, you know, the week before it all, uh, opens, and that affects your advertising budget. Mm-hmm. And once your ads get cut, you become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't remember where we went. <laughs> I don't think we, ultimately, we were trying to think of where we'd go, and we just sort of stayed home, assuming that we wouldn't be bothered because nobody would be calling us which is which is great. It was very quiet. <laughs> and but then, and I remember, and I, as I said at the beginning, this is a, an item of the HBO generation, of the VHS generation. And I was a kid of the '80s. I was um, eight years old in 1986. And I remember vividly when this film came out on VHS. I guess at the at the at some point early of uh, 1987. 
and it seemed to and even though the the tone was was had a lot of innuendo and so forth and was not uh geared towards children uh, were you surprised and when did you start realizing that actually this film is actually a hit with uh kids you know kids are renting this thing yeah well you you start yeah you, you start hearing a small undercurrent of when little people younger people start saying i like this that that there you know it wasn't quite the universal disaster that it was made out to be but um the only reason i realized people were looking at the film was because on amazon.com all of a sudden i saw its rating and i said how could this be a lot of people bought the video and um and so then when they approached us that they were doing a little documentary on the film, it must have been because people were watching the video. Mm-hmm. It may have been that a lot of people watched the video because so few people saw it in its original release. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, uh, here's an obvious question. Um, you know, remakes are always are always popular. Has Has anyone ever even uttered <laughs> the... Uh, you know, well, technology. We, we, Has anyone ever uttered, you know, maybe we could do it again and quote unquote do it properly? Uh, not yet. Although it seems to be going in that direction, they come up with the strangest movies to remake. Um, nobody has really approached us yet about doing Howard the Duck or a sequel or a prequel. But um, do you have? Let me ask maybe you this. we'll do a musical. <laughs> well, let me ask you that, and you don't have to say if you any details but like in the back of your head do you have an idea like you know if i would if i would, if they were to ask me i think i know what i could do that they might like do you do you have that in the back of your head yeah i think the idea would be suicide <laughs> i think somebody said we were going to do it again but uh no i mean we do have a script that takes place in hawaii but but uh no we really haven't thought about it that much well, uh, well, if you do, please come back. Well, and before I got before I let you go, I, I got to ask uh, about as I stated, uh, Temple of Doom. I got to ask a Temple of Doom question because it is my favorite of the of the Indiana Jones films, and I do stand fast on my claim. I do think it's one of the greatest action movies ever made, oh, and thank you. I think I think it's I think it's remarkable. At the time, yes, it was it was a follow up to the the you know one or two of the biggest grossing film of all time. And it was going to be a summer film, so you knew it was going to be a hit. But um, and everyone went, but you know there was this backlash about the, the intensity, and and you know started this talk about a new rating and so forth. So, but I'm curious, you know, 25 years hindsight, what is your take on Temple of Doom? Well, yeah. I think I think it's an interesting film too. I think that because it was you know um, much different than the first one, and the and and the, and the uh, third and fourth. We're more like the first one, I guess. But uh, we remember it very fondly because it was a project having George and Steve Spielberg, you know, doing it meant that we sat around with them and and decided what we wanted to do, wrote it extremely fast. And, uh, you know, Steve said, great. And it, it was very easy. The complications did come when they decided to invent a new rating because uh, kids were peeing in the theater seats. But uh, So we remember the film fondly. I mean, everything about it was just uh, mm-hmm. a joy. See, and we really love things like plucking out the heart. I don't understand why people... 
people are so hostile about this. Well, and uh, I have my own theory, and my my theory is, is that I think adults and parents in particular for, usually forget that when you're a kid, you relish gross-out stuff. And so once you become a parent, you kind of become protective and you've outgrown kind of that gross-out stuff. And no, that's true. It's absolutely true. Monkey brains and things for kids is the best, you know. Uh, monkey brain. I mean, that whole dinner, I mean, I remember, like I said, I was, you know, I'm six years old when that movie comes out, and my favorite sequence was the dinner sequence and the uh, the cave sequence with all the bugs. I mean, that's the, the, the centipede that goes in her, the bug that goes in her hair. I mean, uh <laughs> Every kid loved that. They, every kid loved the heart scene. Just cause these, it was so... are, these are high points in cinema, obviously. Yeah. The... But I, I just don't think people, you know, you, you write it, you're writing like an, a, a boy's adventure story. Mm-hmm. And what you say about them being sort of malevolent is true. They, they are, you know, sort of gross and scary, and that's sort of the fun of it. Yes. So we were really shocked when we were, you know, the victims of this backlash. Howard. It's all right, Toots. Ready, QA, 